This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. An article that appeared in the Business Day almost a month today read as follows. Rescue workers in Mozambique were racing against time to pluck people off trees and rooftops on Tuesday after a monster storm killed more than 1,000 people before smashing into Zimbabwe. Speaking later about the relief effort, the article quotes NGO Rescue SA Director Ian Scher as follows. The Rescue uh, Rescue SA team is having to make potentially life or death decisions about whom to save. What is it like to be a first responder to a disaster and how do you make these decisions? I'm absolutely delighted to have in studio with me Ian Sher, the Director of Rescue SA. Um, Ian, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, Ian, the article continues to say, um, this is a quote from you in the Business Day, sometimes we can only save two out of five. Sometimes we would rather drop food and go to someone else who's in bigger danger. There's two issues at the same time, people stranded in trees and people stranded on houses or new islands that have no food. We just save what we can save and the others will perish. It's quite profound, but the reality of a situation when you're a first responder in a disaster zone. Can you tell me a little bit about those decisions? Well, look, obviously it's extremely difficult for any rescuer who does the work because that's... That's part what, of the job. That's part of the job, but that's also part of what drives them. And it's an extremely difficult decision to make, to leave, to make a decision and who to leave and who to take. And even more difficult is how do you live with that decision afterwards. But this is one of the first opportunities we've, I've been doing this for 40 years. Uh, Rescue South Africa is almost in its 20th year where we do disaster response. And this is the first time that we've been faced with decisions like that. And I think they, they sit quite heavily on, on people's shoulders. You know? And, of course, those decisions are instant decisions. It's not like, you know, when you think back of the traditional parachute debate, you know, five people need to be rescued, one parachute. You don't have the time to really think about it. It's literally it must be an instant. Otherwise, nobody gets saved. Yes, children, women, vulnerable, elderly. That's the way it goes. And that's your decision. Because, I mean, the article goes on to talk about people who are stuck in trees, where there may be snakes. Um. Oh, there, were, uh, there were snakes. There were Everything that's trying to survive is trying to get onto any piece of land or any yeah. anything that's above the water, <clears throat> whether it's animals, whether it's snakes, insects, what have you. So, But everyone is, if I can say everyone, is concerned about their safety, so they're not there trying to attack you. And no, 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 no. Every, no, it's each man, whole creature for, for itself, self, yeah. so to speak. Ian, let's go back. You say you've been involved in the industry for 40 years, Rescue South Africa, 20 years. How did you get involved? I finished my military commitment uh, many years ago and wanted to do community service, and I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie and wanted to do something for community, but I wanted to do something that was exciting in a way, but not having to do like fundraising and other, you know, traditional community services that, you know, the Jewish community is normally involved in. And I, I f- fell onto this and became a volunteer firefighter and just went up through the ranks and got involved with different things and training and motor vehicle extrication competitions and trying to teach firemen to do special rescue over the years and 
and later on now in life, my main drive is to to build capacity, not just in South Africa but in SADC. And we've, in the last four or five years, trained probably four to four and a half thousand firemen in eight of the SADC countries. And essentially trying to make a difference before it's before I have to retire, so oh, to speak. Oh, don't say that. Don't talk about uh, it. Don't talk about it. That's not nice. <laughs> so uh, this year I'll be 70. Really? Congratulations. <laughs> so, so you go, I, you know, I would never have said that, and I don't like to hear you talking about retirement. It's not fair. It's I think <laughs> something like this, where, uh, as you say, it's life and death and it's instant. I don't think it has a cutoff point in terms of training and teaching, and the need for it is so great. Oh, absolutely. And you can imagine, I mean, going to a country where what we do and what we teach Absolutely doesn't exist. So every person that we capacitate in that country is the first. So from a point of view of, of job satisfaction, going and teaching people that have no knowledge on the subject is, is really gratifying, you know, and very rewarding. Ian, um, let's, you've been to Haiti, you've been to, um, Japan. Yes. I imagine Mozambique a couple of times because, yes. you know, I was looking through our archives and I see this flood and, you know, I remember somebody giving birth on a tree That's a couple of years ago. Years ago, yeah. Years ago, right. Um, every disaster is different. Yep. You said now it was the first time you've ever had to make those things. Are different kinds of disasters more impactful than others? Is a flood worse than an earthquake? Or, I mean, how, do you respond differently to different? Okay, I, we have, which is not known, but we have probably the most substantial cache of rescue equipment in sub-Saharan Africa. I have 50, 60 tons of rescue equipment. It's very, very specialized. So depending on the type of incident that you're going to respond to, that's the type of uh, equipment that you draw from, from the warehouse, and that's what you respond with. And hopefully you take everything that you need, because what you've forgotten, you, you don't have. Right. So... Each one is different, each one is different, and each one I've been to in my life has taught me a different life's lesson and how to accept people, how to not put people in boxes. Uh, one does that so easily in life, yet you meet people, say, 10 days after a disaster. They might be gazillionaires. They're still standing in the same clothes they were when this happened. They have no access to their funds. They have no access to anything. And you go and put them in a box and you could be making. And I, I've learned little life, little lessons. life lessons like that is just take people as you find them. Keep an open mind. And one of the things I try and teach a lot of the people that I respond with is your success depends on the agility of your mind. Right. And if you're agile, you can make quick decisions and you can change from one plan to another plan to another plan. You've got to have an A, a B, and a C, and a D. And don't marry any of the plans. Right. Just, you got to be flexible. Just be so flexible that whatever you're faced with, you can try and come up with a plan. And I find dealing with you know, the paramedics, the firefighters, and the doctors that we respond with, they have that sort of mindset of being able to make a plan, so right. to speak. And if A, then B. Yeah, and just sort of having that kind of mind. that, And they're practical. Very often they're kind of really practical people. So uh, some of the guys come up with amazing <laughs> solutions to problems. Rescue SA, you said it's just been going for 20 years, um, but it's an NGO. It's an NGO. There's uh, full-time staff? 
there are there are four of us that are full time, myself and three instructors. And what we do when we're not doing this is we teach. Right. So we're constantly building capacity and constantly looking for funding to fund that. So where we have taught in the various countries has been funded by the American government, the Japanese government, United Nations. So all the teaching we do is for free, so to speak, for the recipient, but funded by somebody. The responses that we do, disaster response, are all for free. Right. So that funding comes from the public. Right. And that's always one of the biggest challenges is to f- get the funding because all of us, when we respond, all of us, myself included, do it for free. So there's absolutely no charge for what we do. And what I try to do to anybody who is prepared to fund is say, just cover the costs of getting us from from here to there and back again, service our equipment when we come back, pay for our food and whatever medical stuff that we need or our consumables, and that's the end of the story. You don't pay for staff. It's uh, really unbelievable what you do. And, again, I'm going to go back to Mozambique first because I feel so passionate about um, what happened to them. And uh, it's the most recent, obviously, of all the disasters. But there were so many issues that were facing Mozambican people at the time. Okay, uh, you have helicopters. How many helicopters do you have? Oh no, we no access to. So essentially, what we did was took a chance, left early. Could have been, could have made fools of ourselves because we drove there before it even hit land. Okay, so I was going to say when you left early because people knew it was coming. Yes. Before it hit. Correct. Could more have been done to help the Mozambicans? Look. You know, you're dealing with a lot of people. So it, besides the town that got hit, Beira, there were, I mean, it was over a really very extensive area. The people that were affected were essentially subsistence farmers. Right. Think about it. If you're in the middle of Africa, real Africa, not where communication is, is, is poor and you're not managing to get messages across, trying to even get the message across for people to go to higher ground and yet it's a, a very flat basin so dis- already, is extremely difficult. So in the towns, you could kind of give people some form of warning. Mm. Out in the in the felt, so to speak, or the bush, almost impossible. So who knows how many people perished that were mm. not even recorded. Mm. If, you know, because it's Africa, it's real Africa, and births and deaths a lot of the time is, is not even recorded. So not to try and sketch anything that is, mm. is that they're disorganized, but Getting messages across like that is not easy. It's not easy, and those people are uneducated peasants, so to mm. speak. So you're helping people. What they have, the little they have, mm. is is in that little meter or square meter of ground that they're standing on. That's everything that they possess is there. They've lost everything. the ground, the, 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 the livestock, their food, food that's already planted, and they're waiting to harvest you can imagine what the impact is over a period of time where where how they live and how they survive that could take a year two years to recover if they can even get back to the land if the topsoil is not washed away so i mean challenges you can imagine are, mm. are tremendous so you you went and you took a chance you went before the how did you know that took a calculated risk could have made fools of ourselves and by chance, we were there on the Thursday night. It hit through the night on Thursday to Friday morning. We were 400 kilometers from Beira. And the next morning, we drove the 400 kilometers. It took 12 hours to drive there. 
And we got to the airport. The roads were closed. The pylons were down. Electric cables in the street. Trees were down. We cut, I think, our team cut maybe seven or eight kilometers of of roadway that we had to open up, cut the trees and move the timber away so they could get access into the airport. One of the runways was closed. The, the airport was quite severely hit. So had, had assist with opening the runway. There was no communication. Communication was an extremely – satellite phones were not working. There was low cloud cover. You couldn't get signal. So even to get this, the message out that these people had been severely affected took three or four days and opening the, the airport before people could fly mm. in and start coming to assist. Mm. So there was no helicopters. There, we used boats and we take inflatable boats that we blow up. My guys <clears throat> were brave beyond – I mean, they amazed me. They dived into that raging water, swam. There are inflatable boats, ropes. They pulled people out. I mean, they were unbelievably brave. And uh, by being there that early and taking a chance, and we saved literally hundreds of lives. I mean, that was for me one of the most gratifying experiences of my life, getting the opportunity to save a life. As a, for a rescuer is an honor that that is afforded to few. Hmm. Uh, you you were there before. What happened also? We, we were kind of as a Jewish board of deputies. I know we were collecting um, funds and goods, but there was very little access after everything was closed. The airports were closed. You're a first respondent. Yes. What happens with the second respondents? How does one face overcome the challenge of getting goods to people when there are very little facilities to get them there? You're touching on something that's extremely difficult. Even in the past, we've been involved here, for example, the xenophobia camps that we set up and so on. The challenge of distributing a product... The logistics of doing that is is unbelievably complicated. And being accountable for what you receive and what you're distributing. So from a logistics point of view, it's much better if you get money and people can buy exactly what is required and move what is required to the place. Let's say it's whether it's the energy biscuits or whether it's flour or rice, water, whatever, or purification stuff. It's so much easier than getting a tin of beans. Right. If I can yes. bring it down to the smallest thing. Yes. Because if I have to take a tin of beans from Johannesburg yes. to Beira, yes. you can imagine what the logistics of that yes. are. So if I could buy a shipload of food because I had the money, would is from more a logistic, meaningful. it's more meaningful and easier for the, for us as rescuers to actually deal with. So you, you saying stop these tins of bean collections. In my opinion, give money, give money to the appropriate. Correct. <laughs> that being key, that being obviously Absolutely. because, uh, you know, a colleague of mine, Yanir Grindler, just I was with Kadena, which is a Jewish um, headed organization, um, and he was up in Beira and mm. further afield. And um, the he was amazed by the signs that say, be careful for, you know, certain charity organizations that um, are not as charitable as they should be. Look, it's big business. So when we come in as first responders, remember what we do, we first responders. The best analogy is to say we're like the fire engine and an an ambulance that arrive uh, at a scene. And our, our, our 
period of work is a limited period of work, 10, 15 days max. So the aid agencies that come after, you see them coming, and it's big business. They might be there for the next five years, and wow. big money gets poured into yeah. even their salaries and their per diems and mm. what have you and what have you. Not to say, It's absolutely necessary. So working with the recognized institutions that you know that will make sure that whatever you're funding gets to the, the right, person. right person is very, very important. Even, even for us, I'm finding it's becoming more and more difficult to get funding for organizations such as ourselves. Years and years ago, all my responses around the world were funded by big business in South Africa. Even individuals might give 10 rand and put that into your bank account. I almost have a sense now there's almost donor fatigue. It is becoming extremely difficult. And the time it takes to raise the money to actually go on a mission Mm. takes away from the opportunity Mm. to rescue. You know, I hear what you're saying. We do have to kind of wrap it up in a minute. But um, what I do find, though, is when our community are so unbelievably generous at the time, you know, when there's faced with a disaster, we know the outpouring that we got from the, since the xenophobia in 2008, the Japan, the Haiti, um, and the Mozambique. When we make an appeal to our community, maybe when faced with that horror, people are, are kind. Yeah. They- we're lucky, you know, we live in an area that people are extremely generous. I mean, I'm really proud to live in this community, in this community because <laughs> we are generous. And I just hope that people hear what we do, you know, and amongst our community will think of us and think of the work that we do if you consider we do it for free yeah it's unbelievable and as you say I mean just reading this when I did at the time just how emotional I got and hearing you say how important it is just to be able to save those lives I mean is there anything more important yeah another thing I'd like to just to finish if there is anybody out there who wants to get involved in helping to run Rescue South Africa. You know, a, a retired successful businessman who, who would like to sort of come onto our board and assist us in running Rescue South Africa, who feels that they have something to offer. I'd like them to get in touch with me. You know, we, we need people that have ability and who believe in what we believe in and who would be prepared to assist in running an organization that's only Main task is to give humanitarian aid for free. Amazing. Ian, give me your contact details if anyone would like to get hold of you. Uh, you can get me on my phone number, which is 082 It's my personal number, and I have it with me all the time. Ian, thank you so much for joining me, and well done for the incredible work that you do. Thanks for the opportunity.